last week we saw that, well, we started, we started chapter 11 last week, and we saw that Paul is now addressing a new question, um, and that is, what does, what does it mean, and what does it look like that Israel now seems to have stumbled? And so he, it, it's clear that they have, but he wants to answer some questions about what this stumbling looks like. So the first question that he asked was what we saw last week is, is the, is the stumbling, is the falling away of Israel, is that fully happening? And of course, he answers no. Not everyone in Israel has fallen. Not everyone has stumbled. He gives himself as an example. He gives the story of Elijah as an example. You know, Elijah thought he was alone, but there was a remnant of 7,000. And even though it was only 7,000 in a nation of, you know, at least a million, which is a very, very small percentage, there are still people that God is preserving and there is still a remnant and so then the question that he poses for us this week is so if if the stumbling is not everyone in Israel well how long is it going to last is this forever is there only ever going to be a really small remnant of people left and so that's the question that he asks in verse 11 <clears throat> or rather he's going to answer so he he wants to know why right he, he asks us did they stumble in order that they might fall? Um, and so then he gives us three answers to this question. So the first thing is that he answers it right away. And it's, I mean, this is what Paul has been doing, right? This is nothing new. If you've been here regularly, Paul asks a question, he answers it, and then he expounds upon that. He explains why he answers the question the way that he does. So he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? No. That is not the reason by which they stumble. And so he gives three reasons. But before we look at the three reasons why in which Israel has stumbled, let's not, just, let's not pass over this too quickly. You see, God is not a vindictive God. He is not looking down upon the world, upon his creation, and watching and laughing at us when we have a hardship. He doesn't make Israel stumble so that he can be like, you fools. Like, I've been telling you all this time that you should be following the law, and now you didn't, and now you have stumbled, and you get what you deserve, and I sit back and I'm laughing. Right? You think about other mythologies. I mean, if you don't have to go too deep into Greek or Roman mythology to realize that the gods within those systems mess with human beings purely for the sake of doing so. They think it's fun. They think it's good sport, right? Um, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I'm fully convinced that all of those false gods are really demons, which is why when you see these stories of Zeus messing with people, of, of taking pleasure in watching people fall and watching people suffer, it makes it clear to me that uh, all of these false gods are real spiritual beings and they're demons and they're they're attacking people and they're messing through and they've changed names over human history right but they're still active today and they're still messing with people but this is not the way that God operates God doesn't look upon Israel watch them stumble and then laugh and say you got what you deserve there was a reason by which God places a stumbling block in their way there is a reason that they fall and it has a purpose and most importantly, that it's not forever. So, let's look at the first thing that he, that he says to us. The first reason that Israel stumbles 
is to bring in the Gentiles. Now, this is not a new idea. This is not unique to Paul. In fact, look at me, look at Matthew 21. <coughs> Paul didn't invent this idea. Jesus talks about it in his parables, specifically two parables in Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. This is Jesus telling the parable of the two sons. He said, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered him, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And so Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. He tells another parable. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a, vent, a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. But the tenants took his servants and they beat one, they killed another and they stoned another. And so again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his own son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him and have his inheritance. So they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of his, the, him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Jesus gives us two parables that give the exact same message that Paul is saying here. Israel has stumbled. The message has gone to the Gentiles because they rejected it, right? That's exactly what both of these parables are about. So Israel stumbles so that the Gentiles can be brought in. Now you might wonder, uh, why, is this, why is this the way in which it has to happen? Why, from the beginning, did God just not bring in the Gentiles and the Jews and everybody? Why wasn't it just after Adam and Eve could be a free-for-all and anybody and everybody and God reveals himself to every nation? 
Why is it that he is choosing one so that they will stumble, so that in the end God is bringing in the Gentiles, all of the non-Israelites? We look at the story, and if we don't understand the Bible in its entirety, it's easy to ask that question and think, this seems like a lot of nonsense, right? Why, why is this? Why are we going through and jumping through all of these hoops when from the beginning God could have just invited everyone to be a part? But we miss a vital part of who God is if we don't have the history that we have. And that is, essentially, that God is choosing certain people, right? I mean, we've looked at this for several chapters, that God chooses a nation on purpose, not because they're better than any other nation. He chooses a people not because they're holier than other people, but because this is the way that God operates. He chooses some, he reveals himself to some, right? Not even all of Israel did God reveal himself to, but he sets aside prophets within Israel to reveal himself to. This is the way that God has always operated. He's always choosing some to reveal himself to the larger groups. This is a part of who God is. So why does God choose Israel? And I think that that's the answer. So Israel stumbles, and the Gentiles are brought in through that stumbling. Now... It's not as if God is done with them, right? So the first part is, he wants to make a way for the Gentiles to come in. And then the second part is, he wants to make Israel jealous. So Israel sees that the Gentiles are being brought in. They see that there is a people whom they considered dogs, right? That they had a prejudice against, that they cast out, that they had no dealings with whatsoever. And now God has invited them in, and they're thinking, wait a minute. That's the God whom we serve. That's the God who chose us. Why is he now choosing this other group of people? And it makes them jealous. Look at Acts 13 for a moment with me. It's way down at the bottom of this chapter. Starting in verse 44. Paul and Barnabas, they're preaching in the synagogue, and this is what happens. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the entire city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Now, that's a good start, right? We're going to talk about this word, but what they do with this jealousy is what we will recognize is wrong in sin. They were filled with with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you have thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You see this idea throughout all of Scripture. That God presents the gospel through Christ to Israel first, and they reject it. And that's when God expands it out. That's when God turns to the Gentiles. Why? Not because he has abandoned Israel, not because he is done with this nation whom he has chosen from the beginning, but so that they would become jealous. 
Now, this is not a human emotion in which we usually find positivity in, right? How often have you seen somebody be jealous and it be good and healthy? Not, not very often, right? It doesn't mean that jealousy is 100% bad because we know throughout the Old Testament, right? God is jealous for his people all the time. When they bow the knee to Baal, he is jealous for them. It's not a bad thing to have. It's just that a lot of the times when it crops up in us, we take the wrong direction. We do what the Israelites did in the, in the Acts 13 passage, right? We see something and our jealousy leads us not into the truth, but into a lie. You see, the idea was for Israel to become jealous of what was happening with the Gentiles and change their ways. Repent and believe in the gospel to be welcomed back into the church. That was the point. That was the purpose. It wasn't so that they would get mad at Paul, that they would try and kill him, that they would try and stone him. None of those things. It was so that they would see who God is and repent and believe. Let's give an example. Now, let's, we're, we're, we're talking about this hypothetical in a vacuum, right? In a perfect world, think about this happening to you. You're going to work, and your boss is giving praise and attention to someone else whom you work with. And jealousy crops up in you. And the right response, the good response coming out of jealousy, is not to resent the other person, but to say, yeah, that guy deserves the praise and admiration that the boss gave because he works hard and he does a good job and I want to be like him. I want the praise and admiration of my boss so I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to emulate the person who is receiving the goodness and the blessings so that one day maybe the boss will look at me the same way, right? That's, that's how all of you do it, right? Anytime someone else at work, right? Anytime anyone else gets any kind of praise, that's always the thing, right? Most of the time, jealousy leads us down. Oh, man, that guy, how can you believe that? And we're spiteful and we're angry. But the right way for jealousy to operate is in that sense. And that's what Paul is saying here. This idea of jealousy is for the Israel to emulate what the Gentiles are doing. Namely, to have faith in Jesus. To believe in him. To stop looking at the law for their self-righteousness. But to look to God. To have faith in him. To find their salvation in that. That's the point. So Israel has fallen. Not completely. And they're not going to be fallen forever. They stumble. So that the Gentiles can be brought in. So that they can be jealous. Of God paying attention. Of God giving blessing to people whom they didn't recognize to be people deserving of it so that they would come back. Now we see in verse 12, there is some interesting statements. He describes the result of their following as riches to the world and riches to the Gentiles. Now I think there's an obvious, right, in our face meaning that there are riches that are given to the Gentiles, once again, namely the gospel. That they now have been, the, the doors have been opened up for them to, to see who God is and to believe in who God is. This is a treasure beyond all other, right? If everyone in this room who understands the gospel, who knows Jesus, who has that relationship, like, we would be willing to give up every possession that we own for that. 
because we recognize how deep of a treasure it is. But there's also a cultural reason, I think, going on here. There is a reason in which why the, the Israel falls or they stumble so that the Gentiles can be brought in. You see, during this time, and we see it a little bit even in our own time, but there is a massive prejudice on both fronts, right? The Greeks hate the Jews and the Jews hate the Greeks. Like there is a huge prejudice. The Greeks look at the Jews and think that they're barbarians and the Jews look at the Greeks and they call them dogs over and over and over again. They don't like each other. They have different, completely different understandings of the way that the world works. So think for a moment, if the massive if most of the Jews had accepted Jesus for the Messiah, they formed the new Christian church, what do you think, or how long do you think it would have taken for them to accept and bring in the Gentiles? I don't know. Maybe never. I don't know, right? It would have taken many, many, many years for the Jews to be willing. I mean, even the remnant of the Jews that are in the church, we see this conflict happening throughout the New Testament. What do they want to preserve? They look at the Gentiles and they say, well, yeah, we know that there is a Messiah. We know that Jesus has come, but you still have to be circumcised. We know that Jesus has come and we know the gospel is here, but you still can't eat that. That's unclean. You have to wash your hands this certain way. You have to do these things. You see, even in the small amount, even though they are such a small part of the new Christian church, they are still trying to hold on to the law. They're still trying to tell Gentiles, you can't just come in to the church. That's not okay. You have to follow all of these sacrimonial things that we've been doing for thousands of years. You have to still do that. If the, if the majority of the Jews had made up the church, can you imagine how much harder it would have been for the Gentiles to come in? God knows what he's doing. In other words, God looks at the situation and he knows if the world is going to be saved... This is the manner of events. This is a sequence of events that has to happen if the Gentiles are ever going to be allowed into the church. It took a long time. And for many, many, many Jews, they still are not willing to accept this, right? They still are relying on the law for their righteousness and for their holiness. If the Jews had not stumbled, the Gentiles, I don't know if they would have ever been brought in. It would have taken a very, very long time. But we see the course of history, and it happens almost overnight. Because there are not a lot of Jewish people there trying to force them to do all of these things. So the stumbling brings in the Gentiles. It causes jealousy to the Jews. And lastly, it brings some of them back. And this is what Paul says to us. That through his ministry, some of them are being saved. Now, we are faced with the statement then again in verse 12, and this is what it says, and we have to understand what we're trying to, um, we need to understand what, what is happening. In verse 12, he says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will, the, will their full inclusion mean? So what does this mean? Does this mean that every single Jewish person, that every single ethnic Israelite is going to be saved? I think we understand that that's impossible, right? At least through human history, right? We understand that God is 100% just. He is not letting people into heaven 
who don't believe in the gospel. He is not letting people into heaven who are relying on the law for their sanctification, for their justification. It's not, that's not where righteousness is found. Paul has made that absolutely 100% clear. So what does he mean by full inclusion? I don't know what version you're reading. Some of them just say the fullness, right? The Greek actually means their fullness. How much more will their fullness be included? There are many people who have, once again, formed their eschatology, their ending of the world, their understanding of what does the end of the world look like. Well, what it looks like is when all of Israel is back into God's fold. And it hinges a lot on how we understand this. What does their full inclusion mean? Well, to understand it, we should, we're not there yet, but we need to go down to verse, I think it's 25. Yeah, 25. We'll get there. But he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So if this word, which is the exact same word in both verses, means everyone, then everyone at some point is going to be saved. If the fullness of Israel is coming in and the fullness of the Gentiles, which is just, I mean, that, that includes everyone on the planet, right? You're either a Jew or a Gentile. You understand? That, those are the two. That's the separating line. So if this in verse 12 means that every single Jewish person is going to be saved at some point, then that means the entire world, the fullness of the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, it may mean that, and I'm not trying to be, like, pessimistic, but pray, that would be, what a sight to see. Every human being walking the planet is believing in the gospel. Like, that's what we hope for. I would love to see that. It's not our reality now, and so it's hard to think that that's what Paul is saying. But maybe he is. Maybe he's prophesying a day when the fullness of Israel, when every single one of them is going to be saved. And when the fullness of the Gentiles, and there, I mean, there are people, post-millennial, like this idea that there is coming a day in human history when the world is going to be overtaken by the gospel. And that's when Jesus comes back. When there's going to be a thousand year reign of the church and prosperity and everybody is hearing and everybody is believing. I don't know that they would go so far as to say every single human being literally, but that's, that's an understanding of how the world is going to end. That the fullness of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles are coming. Maybe that's what's happening. Like, I can't see the future. And so the point is, is that we have to try and understand what the word means. The full inclusion of the Israelites, the full inclusion of the Gentiles is something that Paul is talking about. Paul is essentially prophesying that this is one day going to come. So that's what it could mean, right? It could mean that everyone is. Or it could mean that the fullness of the elect, right? Paul has talked about in verse 7, he talks about some of Israel are the ones who are the elect. They have been saved, right? The, the ones that God foreknew, they are part of that elect and they have been brought in. So maybe that's the fullness he's talking about. It, the point is, I don't know. Uh, it's not clear in the verses that we read. What does that fullness mean? What is the full inclusion of Israel look like? Is it everyone? Is it all of his elect? Is it just the majority? I don't know. But there is coming a day, and really the point is, is that God has not abandoned his nation. They have stumbled, and that allowed the Gentiles to be brought in. 
That caused them to be jealous. And God is bringing back in the fullness of Israel. Whatever that means, right? I don't know. Maybe it's everybody. Maybe it's most of them. Maybe it's the fullness of the elect. Whatever. But God has not abandoned his people. And that is the message I think that Paul is trying to communicate to us. Just because the Gentiles have been brought in doesn't mean that God is now done with Israel. He doesn't look at them and say, yep, for however many thousands of years you guys have been denying me, making mistake after mistake, generation after generation, you've been worshiping other gods, I'm finally just completely done with you. There is a way. And not just a way, but there is a prophecy, a promise that they are coming back, that God is bringing them back in. The last thing to say about at least these two verses is this. The Gentiles, they have received these riches from the stumbling of the Jews, but one day the riches will increase even more during their full inclusion. You see, I can imagine that the Gentiles were looking at Paul's message and saying, Israel used to be a part. They have been rejected so that we can be brought in, and now they're coming back. Like, are they going to kick us out? Are they going to take back over? Is it going to be that, that God is then using the Gentiles solely to get Israel back into the church? And once that happens, Gentiles are being discarded. And Paul is making it very clear that's not what happened. They received riches in Israel's stumbling. How much greater are the riches going to be when Israel's full inclusion has come back? That is the message that Paul is preaching to them. You are here now, and it's going to be even better when Israel is brought back in. You will not be discarded. Once again, this is not how God deals with his people. This is not what God does to us. He doesn't use us as props. He doesn't look at his creation and say, I'm using you for a purpose, and once I'm done with you in that purpose, I discard you. No, the Gentiles are brought in, and they get to stay in. They get all of the blessings of being a part of the church forever. This is not something that will be removed from them. And then 13 to 15. Now Paul very specifically turns and is starting to preach and speak to the Gentiles. He says to them, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So once again, Paul is making clear that the Gentiles not only are not being abandoned by God, but he is not abandoning them. Christ has called Paul specifically to minister to the Gentiles. That is, what, that, is, that is his main role, that is his main calling. And that's what we saw in Acts chapter 13. He has turned away from preaching to the Jews, and he has gone to the Gentiles. And Paul is not neglecting that. Now, at face value, when I first read this, I thought, man, it kind of seems like he is. It kind of seems like he's using the Gentiles. He's only magnifying his ministry so that some of his brethren will be saved. But think about it for a little while. Um, I came to a different conclusion. I th- 
Once again, I don't know how many times you, this happens to you. You read the Bible, and at face value, it seems to say one thing, but then you spend some time with it, right? You think about it, you mull it over, you ask yourself some questions, you go and read a little bit, and you realize, this is actually not what it's saying. I don't think it's what it's saying at all. In fact, I think it's saying the opposite. I think Paul is saying to the Gentiles, my ministry is to you. This is the most important thing because this is what God has called me to do. He has called him specifically to preach to the Gentiles. And he is telling them that his ministry to them is going to cause the Jews to be jealous so that some of them will be saved so that they know what their purpose is, what their calling is. He is looking to the Gentiles and he is saying, they are watching you. Church in Rome, they are watching you. The Jewish people are watching you. And when you have faith that is strong, the things that I have taught you, the Jews are being jealous when they watch you be faithful. And guess what's happening when they watch you and when they see that you are faithful? Their jealousy breeds faith. It breeds salvation in them. To me, Paul is what he is doing is what he's looking at them and saying, is he giving them a challenge? You are the light of the world. And when you act accordingly, when you do and speak properly, not just when you act properly, but when we do things that show our faith and when we speak about who Jesus is, it creates jealousy. This is not just true for the church in Rome, but it's true for us. I'm sure this has either happened to you or you've heard about it and you understand that it is a reality, is that when Christians live out their faith and speak about Jesus and speak about the peace and the salvation that you have in Christ, other people look at you and be like, I don't get you. I do not understand how it is that this horrible thing is happening in your life and you seem completely calm and you seem completely at peace. How is that possible? How can I get the thing that you have? I don't know what that thing is, but I've watched you these last six months. I've watched you suffer through something that would crush most people. And here you are with joy in your heart, with a smile on your face, and you have not denied your church. You have not denied the God whom I've heard you talk about for years. How is that possible? You see... People see that in you, and they want it. In the same way that the Israelites, the Israelites looked to the Gentiles and were jealous of their faith, there are people who look at you and are jealous of what you have. Because the world offers no comfort when it comes to tragedy, when it comes to illness, when it comes to so many things that crop up in our lives that cause chaos. But when we have Christ, when we have that peace, it causes jealousy among other people. So Paul is not looking to the Gentiles and saying, I'm only using you so that the Jews will come in. He is saying, you are the light to God's chosen people. You are the light to Israel. You better live up to the things that I've been writing to you. You better live up to your calling. You better let that face shine to the world because people are seeing it. And that is true for us. The town of Bayfield sees the faith. and I mean, we here, the people who are here all of the time, we firsthand know the struggles that this church has been through in the last year and a half, two years, right? But so does the rest of this community. It's not like everybody else is like, ah, I, guess, I guess First Baptist Bayfield is doing okay, right? 
People understand, they know the struggle that has gone, that this church has gone through. And they see the shining light and the faith and the ministry and that we are still here, that we are still preaching the gospel. And people see that and they take notice of that. It happens in your individual life. It's happening with this church and this community. This is a charge to the church in Rome and to the Gentiles. And it's a charge to us. To be a light in this community, to continue to stand firm on the faith and the things in which we believe that the Bible teaches, so that the, this community will see that. And the last thing to say is this very last verse in verse 15. What is the result? That there is life that comes from the dead. So Paul says that is the hope of the Israelites, that they will have life that comes from the dead. This is the gospel. This is what we hope for every single person whom we know, who doesn't know who Jesus is. For those people who look at you, they hear you talk about God, they see your faith, and they say, what is that? That person is dead in their sins. That is the message of earlier in Romans, right? People are dead in their sins, but there is life, and it comes only through Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. That is what Paul hopes for the Jews. And that is what we should hope for everyone whom we know who is not a believer. We know that they are dead in their sins. And we pray and we hope and we speak about God and we show our faith so that in their deadness, God will produce life in them. That they will be saved. That they will be forgiven through the work of Jesus. This is the reason by which we do the same things that the Gentiles were doing. That we live out our faith. That we would want to spark jealousy in the non-believer. So, so that they would be able to be brought out of that deadness and into life, into Christ, and into salvation. That's the goal. That's, that's the reason we are here as Christians. That's the reason this church is here in this community. So that we can go out into the community and bring life to those who are dead. This is our calling. This is our challenge. This is the challenge that, that Paul puts on um, the Gentiles. And this is the challenge that Paul is putting on each one of you and on our church this morning as well. Let us not take that lightly. Let us embrace that. Everything that we are doing, every part of our life, every aspect of who we are, let us embrace that. Let us see that as the challenge of what it means to be a Christian in this community, in this life, that we are that light, that we can provide life in the words that we speak and the things in which we do. So that those who are dead will be brought from that death into life. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we recognize that life can come from nowhere else. But through the work, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Father, this is a daunting challenge. This is not something that we as individuals have the strength and the ability to do on our own. But, Father, we are so grateful that you have given us the Holy Spirit, that he empowers us, that he strengthens us to go out into this world, into this darkness full of dead people living in their sins, stuck in that, having no escape. And, Lord, through the courage and the boldness that we get through your Holy Spirit, the help that, 
the words that he gives us to speak in situations where we don't know what to say. Father, all of that comes through your helper, through the Holy Spirit that lives within each one of us. Father, we are so grateful for that, that you have given us a task that we can't do on our own, but that you have also given us the ability to do it through your power and through your help. Father, help us to tap into that. Help us to never forget that you are dwelling inside of each one of us who believe in you that we have your power in us as we go out into this world, that this church has the power of the Holy Spirit to go out into our community, to bring those who are dead into life. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us this gift. Help us to go and to share it in the things that we do and in the things that we say. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.